sessions update. We are now on good pods as well as Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, Podcast, and wherever else you may find our podcast. Um, do make sure to check out Good Pods, which is another podcast platform and app. And also follow us over there as well. You can also comment on our epi- on the episodes, uh, tell us what you think, and so forth. So that is the update. Now, for today's episode, which is episode number seven of the ses- sessions, we are covering Ernest Henry Sackleton. And then we are going to, going to go on to the Shackleton Endurance. But a little bit of a backstory on Mr. Shackleton here. So, Ernest Henry Shackleton, 15th of February 1874 to 5th of January 1922, was an Anglo-Irish Antarctic explorer who led three British expeditions to the Antarctic. He was one of the principal figures of the period known as the Heroic Age of Antarctic Exploration. Born in Kilkay, County Kildare, Ireland, Shackleton and his Anglo-Irish family moved to Sydenham in suburban South London when he was 10. Shackleton's first experience of the polar regions was as third officer on Captain Robert Falcon Scott's Discovery Expedition of 1901-1904, from which he was sent home early on held grounds, after he and his companions Scott and Edward Adrian Wilson set a new southern record by marching to latitude 82 S during the Nimrod expedition of 1907-1909, he and three companions established a new record, farthest south latitude at 88 S, only 97 geographical miles, 112 statutory miles, or 180 kilometres from the South Pole. The largest advance to the Pole in exploration history. Also, members of his team climbed Mount Erebus, the most active Antarctic volcano. For these achievements, Sackleton was knighted by King Edward, I think that's the seventh, on his return home. Um, After the race to the South Pole ended in December 1911, with Wald. Amundsen's conquest, Shackleton turned his attention to the crossing of Antarctica from sea to sea, via the Pole. To this end, he made preparations for what became the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition, from 1914 to 1917. Disaster struck this expedition when its ship Endurance became trapped in pack ice and was slowly crossed before the shore parties could be landed. The crew escaped by camping on the sea ice until it disintegrated, then by launching the lifeboats to to reach Elephant Island and ultimately South Georgia Island. A stormy ocean voyage of 720 nautical miles which is 
830 miles and Shackleton's most famous exploit. In 1921, he returned to the Antarctic with the Shackleton Roritz expedition, but died of a heart attack while his ship was moored in South Georgia. At his wife's request, he was buried there. Away from his expeditions, Sackleton's life was generally restless and unfulfilled. In his search for rapid pathways to wealth and security, he launched business ventures which failed to prosper and he died heavily in debt. Upon his death, he was lauded in the press, but was thereafter largely forgotten while the heroic reputation of his rival Scott was sustained for many decades. Later in the 20th century, Sackleton was rediscovered and became a role model for leadership in extreme circumstances. In his 1956 address to the British Science Association, Sir Raymond Priestley, one of his contemporaries, said, Scott for scientific method, Amundsen for speed and efficiency, but when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Sackleton. Paraphrasing what Ashley Cherry Goward had written in a preface to his 1922 memoir, The Worst Journey in the World. In 2002, Sackleton was voted 11th in a BBC poll of the 100 Greatest Britons. Now, as we mentioned, he was born in Kilcare, County Kildare in Ireland. His father, Henry Sackleton, tried to enter the British Army, but his poor health prevented him from doing so. He became a farmer instead, settling in the Sackleton family are of English origin, specifically from Yorkshire. Abraham Sackleton, an English Quaker, moved to Ireland in 1726 and started a school at Ballator, County Kildare. Sackleton's mother, Henrietta Letitia Sophia Gavan, was descended from the Fitzmaurice family. Ernest was the second of their ten children and the first of two sons. The second, Frank, achieved notoriety as a suspect, later exonerated in the 1907 theft of the so-called Irish Crown Jewels, which have never been recovered. Been recovered. In 1880, when Ernest was six, Henry Sackleton gave up his life as a landowner to study medicine at Trinity College, Dublin moving his family to the city four years later. The family moved again from Ireland to Sydenham in suburban London. Partly, this was in search of better professional prospects for the newly qualified doctor. But another factor may have been unease, may have been unease about their Anglo-Irish ancestry. Following the assassination by Irish nationalists of Lord Frederick Cavendish, the British Chief Secretary for Ireland in 1882. However, Shackleton took lifelong pride in his Irish roots and frequently declared, I am an Irishman. So, as you can probably guess, that during these times it was pretty tough, you know, a lot of uh, sabotage and stuff like that going on. So, 
if we move on to his education. From excuse me, early childhood, Shackleton was a voracious, a voracious reader, a pursuit which sparked a passion for adventure. He was schooled by a governess until the age of 11, when he began at Fur Lodge Preparatory School in West Hill, Dulwich, in south-east London. At the age of 13, he entered Dulwich College. The young Sackleton did not particularly did not particularly distinguish himself as a scholar, and was said to be bored by his studies. Well, isn't every kid bored to some extent? He was quoted later as saying, I never learned much geography at school. Literature, too, consisted in the, in the dissection, the parsing, the analysing of certain passages from our great poets and prose writers. Teachers should be very careful not to spoil their pupils' taste for poetry for all time by making its task and an imposition. In his final term at school, he was still able to achieve fifth place in his class of 31. So maybe he that so maybe he was a bit bored, no, but he was still able to do very well. I'm assuming like coming achieving fifth place out of a class of thirty one isn't bad. But let's go from the education to the merchant navy officer, and then we will and then we will head on over to the endurance ship and obviously I will put this article in the description so you can read it for yourself. So Shackleton's restlessness at school was such that he was allowed to leave at sixteen and go to sea. The options available were a Royal Navy cadet ship at Britannia when Shackleton could not afford. The mercantile marine cadet ships Worcester and Conway or an apprenticeship before the mast on a sailing vessel. The third option was chosen. His father was able to, to secure him a berth with the Northwestern Shipping Company aboard the square-rigged sailing ship Hockton Tower. During the following four-year siege, Sackleton learned his trade, visiting the far corners of the earth and forming acquaintances with a variety of people from many walks of life, learning to be at home with all kinds of men. In August 1894, he passed his, his examination for a second mate and accepted a post as third officer on a tramp steamer of the Welshire Line. Two years later, he had obtained his first mate's ticket, and in 1898, he was certified as a master mariner qualifying him to command a British ship anywhere in the world. In, 19, in 1898, Sackleton joined Union Castle Line, the regular mail and passenger carrier between Southampton and Cape Town. He was, as a shipmate recorded, a departure from our usual type of young officer, 
content with his own company, though not aloof, spouting lines from Keats and Browning, a mixture of sensitivity and aggression, but withal sympathetic. Following the outbreak of the Boer War in 1899, Sackleton transferred to the troop ship Tindagale Castle, where in March 1900 he met an army lieutenant, Cedric Longstaff, whose father, Llewellyn W. Longstaff, was the main financial backer of the National Arctic Antarctic Expedition, then being organised in London. Sackleton used his acquaintances with the son to obtain an interview with Longstaff Sr., with a view to obtaining a place on the expedition. Longstaff, impressed by Sackleton's keenness, recommended him to Sir Clements Markham, the expedition's overlord, making it clear that he wanted Sackleton accepted. On 17th February 1901, his appointment as third officer to the expedition ship Discovery was confirmed. On June 4th, he was commissioned into the Royal Navy with the rank of sub-lieutenant in the Royal Naval Reserve. Although officially on leave from Union Castle, this was in fact the end of Sackleton's Merchant Navy service. And... So that will be that for the time being. We are going to go over go over to Sackleton's endurance, and then we're going to go back and go through the other half of you know his life, so to speak. So, so the Sackleton endurance was designed by. Ollie Andrew Larson, and Jones was built at the Famille shipyard in Sandford, Norway, and fully completed on 17th of December 1912. She was built under the supervision of Master Wood, Wood shipbuilder Christian Jacobson, who was renowned for insisting that all men in, in his employment were not just skilled shipwrights, but also experienced in seafaring aboard whaling or sealing ships. Every detail of her construction had been sumptuously planned to ensure maximum durability. For example, every joint and fitting was cross-braced for maximum strength. The ship was launched on 17th of December 1912. Now, you may remember or you may have heard of the year 1912, because in that very same year, in April 10th, you had the Titanic. So that may ring a bell. Um, the ship was launched on on December 17th, 1912, and was initially christened Polaris after the North Star. She was 144 foot, 44 metre long, with a 25 foot, 7.6 metre beam, and measured 350 tonnes gross. Her original purpose was to provide luxurious accommodation for small tourist and hunting parties in the, in the Arctic as an ice-capable steam yacht. 
At launch, she had 10 passenger cabins, a spacious dining saloon, and a galley with accommodation for two cooks, a smoking room, a dark room to allow passengers to develop photographs, electric lighting, and even a small bathroom. Though her hull looked from the outside like that of another vessel of a comparable size, it was not. She was designed for polar conditions, with a very sturdy construction. Her keel members were four pieces of solid oak, one above the other, adding up to a thickness of 85 inch, 2,200 millimetres, while her sides were between 30 inches, 760 millimetres, and 18 inches in, 460 millimetres thick, with twice as many frames as normal, and the frames... Being of double thickness, she was built of planks of oak and Norwegian fir, up to 30 inches, 760mm thick, sheathed in green heart, an exceptionally strong and heavy wood. The bow, which was designed to meet the eyes head-on, had been given special attention. Each timber had been made from a single oak tree, chosen for its shape so that its natural shape followed the curve of the ship's design. When put together, these pieces had a thickness of 52 inches, which is 1,300mm. Of her three masts, the forward one was square-rigged, while the after two carried force and aft sails, like a schooner. As well as sails, Endurance had a 350 horsepower, 260 kilowatt coal-fired steam engine, making the ship capable of speeds of up to 10.2 kilonauts, which is 11.7 miles per hour. At the time of her launch in 1912, Endurance was arguably the strongest wooden ship ever built. With the possible exception of Fram, the vessel used by Friedrich Nansen and later by Roald Amundsen. There was one major difference between the ships. Fram was bowed-bottomed, which meant that if the ice closed in against her, the ship would be squeezed up and out and not be subject to pressure of the compressing ice. Endurance, on the other hand, was not intended to be frozen into heavy pack ice, and so was not designed to rise out of the course. It was observed on the expedition that she instead felt tended to resist being crossed by flows until the ice cracked to relieve the pressure. So, let's go on to Sackleton Purchase. So Polaris was originally built for Adrian de Galak and Lars Christensen. Financial problems led to Galak pulling out of their partnership, leaving Christensen unable to pay the farm's yard the final amounts to hand over the outfit and outfit the ship. For over a year, Christensen attempted unsuccessfully to sell the ship. Since her unique design as an ice-capable passenger carrying ship, with relatively little space for stores and no cargo hold, made her useless to the whaling or sealing industries.
Meanwhile, she was too big, slow and uncomfortable to be a private steam yacht. In the event, Christensen was happy to sell the ship to Ernest Shackleton in January 1914 for 14, for, and this is in GB, this is in British pounds, 14,000 pounds in Canadian money, which represented a significant loss to Christensen as it barely covered the outstanding payments to families, let alone the ship's total build costs. Author Alfred Lansing reports that he was happy to take the loss in order to further the plans of an explorer of Sackleton's stature. Sackleton did not have the money at the time, but Christensen was eager for him to purchase the ship and pay the deposit himself. After Sackleton purchased the ship, she was requisitioned endurance after the Sackleton family motto. Which is fortitude in Vincimus by endurance we conquer. The ship was originally projected ready by mid May, but completion was delayed for a month. Shackleton had the ship relocated from Norway to London. She arrived at the Millwall dock in the spring of 1914, and until the end of July was spent gathering equipment, stores, finances and crew. The twin twin deck was converted into a cargo hold and the crew instead made their headquarters in the forecastle. The dark room remained abaft of the boiler. The refit also saw the ship repainted from white and gilt to black. Despite her change of name, she retained a large badge in the shape of a five-pointed star on her stern, which originally symbolised her name after the pole star. Her new equipment included three ship's bolts, two were two, two were 21-foot, 6.4 metres, transom-built rowing cutters, purchased second-hand from the railing industry, the third was a larger 22.5 foot, 6.9 metres double ended rowing railboat. Built for the expedition, two specifications drawn up by Frank Worsley, Endurance's new captain. After her refit, Endurance began a short coastal journey to Plymouth on August 1st, 1914. The same day, Germany declared war on Russia. Which, if you are aware of what's going on currently, which I'm pretty sure you are, <clears throat> that world war is very much on the precipice of, you know, everyone's lips. But anyway, let's, anyway to find a crew for the endurance, Shackleton reportedly placed an advertisement in the Times reading, Men Wanted for Hazardous Journey. Small wages, better cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. Now is that me now is that with me looking at that like return doubtful? Like I'd be like, like do I or don't I? I mean but then again you do have to remember that during these times you know Money wasn't so easy to come by, and 
you know, if you are offered, you know, a chance to, you know, go on an expedition or something, then you may, you know, take take the offer. Voyages to the Antarctic Circle in the 16 years prior to Endurance's purchase had been almost uniformly successful, with only one vessel, the 30-year-old whaler Antarctic having been crushed in ice, with it being felt that little harm could come to a purpose-built ship in a sea in which ice halted or waves. Endurance became the first ship to be insured for her journey. All previous examples had their insurance end at the last port of call before their journey into the ice. Lloyds of London and the Indemnity Marine Insurance Company underwrote insurance at the value of £15,000 in today's money. So, the final voyage. Embarking on her maiden voyage, insurance sailed from Plymouth on the 6th of August 1914 and set course for Buenos Aires, Argentina, under Worsley's command. Sackleton remained in Britain, finalising the expedition's organisation and attending some last-minute fundraising. This was Endurance's first major voyage following its completion and amounted to a shakedown voyage. Built for the ice, her hold was considered by many of her crew too rounded for the open ocean. Sackleton took a steamer to Buenos Aires and caught up with his expedition a few days after Endurance's arrival. On October 26, 1914, Endurance sailed from Buenos Aires to what would be her last port of call. The raiding station at Gritiken on the island of South Georgia, where she arrived on the 5th of November. She left Gritkin on 5th December 1914, heading for the southern region of the Red Sea. Two days after leaving South Georgia, the Germans encountered polar pack ice and progress slowed to a crawl. For weeks, the Germans worked its way through the pack, averaging less than 30 miles per day, by 15th of January 1915, Endurance was within 200 miles of her destination, Vassel Bay. In the following, by the following morning, heavy pack ice was sighted, and in the afternoon, a gale developed under these conditions. It was soon evident progress could not be made, and Endurance took shelter under the lee of a large grounded iceberg during the next two days. Endurance moved back and forth under the sheltering protection of the berg. On 18th of January, the gale began to moderate and Endurance set the topsail with the engine at slow. The pack had been had blown away was different from what had been encountered before, and the ship was soon amongst thick but soft brass ice and became beset. The gale increased in intensity and kept the blowing for another six days from a northerly direction towards land. By 24th of January, the wind had completely compressed the ice in the Red Sea against the land, leaving endurance icebound as far as the eye could see in every direction. All that could be done was to wait for a southerly 
scale to start pushing in the direction, which would decompress and open ice. In the early morning of 24th of January, a round crack appeared in the ice 50 yards ahead of the ship. Initially 15 foot across but one mile long, by mid-morning the next day the break was over 0.25 miles wide, giving the men on the endurance hope that the ice was breaking up. But the break never reached the ship itself, and despite three hours under full sail and full speed on the engine, the ship did not budge. Over the next days, the crew waited for the suddenly gale to release the pressure on ice, but while the wind backed to the hoped for south-southwest direction, it remained light and erratic. Unseasonably low temperature of around minus 2, which is minus 19 Celsius, additionally kept the ice together. Occasionally, breaks in the ice were spotted, but none reached the ship and all closed up within a few hours. On the 14th of February, an open channel of water opened up 0.25 miles ahead of the ship and dawn showed. The endurance was afloat in a pool of soft, young ice no more than 2 feet. 0.61 millimetres thick, but the pool was surrounded by solid pack ice of 12 to 18 foot, which is 3.7 to 5.5 millimetres in thickness, blocking the path to the open lead. A day's continual work by the crew saw them hack a clear channel 150 yards Long this work continued through the following day, 15th of Feb, and with steam raised, the endurance was backed up within her pool as far as possible to allow the ship to ram her way through the tunnel. As the ship went astern for successive attempts, lines were attached from the bow to loosen the blocks of ice, estimated to weigh 20 tonnes which is 18 tons, in order to clear the path. The pool proved too small for the ship to gain enough momentum to successfully ram her way clear. And by the end of the day, ice began to freeze up again. By 3pm, endurance had made 200 yards of distance through the ice, with 400 yards still to go to clear water. Shackleton decided that the consumption of coal and manpower and the risk of damage to the ship was too great and called a halt. So, things weren't looking great. I mean, have been having first warned of not to go in the first place. They, they were warned not to go because of the ice. But clearly... Either because he was, you know, the the adrenaline was going because of the excitement, or you no, know, or he basically ignored the advice. So he went. So he basically said, you know, and this is and this this is my words. He basically said, "Fuck it, I'm gonna go ahead no matter what." So I I don't know, but let me just take a quick break and then we'll we will resume.
After this frustration, Endurance's boilers were extinguished, committing the ship to drift with the ice until released naturally on 17th of February. The sun dipped below the horizon at midnight, showing the end of the Antarctic summer. On 24th of Feb, regular watches on the ship were cancelled, with the Endurance now functioning as a shore station. The ship had slowly drifted south and at this point was within 60 miles 97 kilometers of the intended landing point at Vassell Bay. But the icy terrain between the ship and the shore was too arduous to travel. While carrying the materials and supplies needed for the overland expedition. By March, navigational observation showed that the ship and the mass of pack ice that contained it was still moving, but now swinging towards the west, northwest, and increasing in the speed of its drift, moving 130 miles between the start of March and 2nd of May. When the sun disappeared below the horizon and the dark Antarctic winter began. On 14th of July 1915, endurance was swept by a southwest gale, with wind speeds of 112 kilometers, which is 70 miles per hour, a barometer reading of 28.88 in HG, in HG, 978 HPA, and temperatures failing to a minus 33 Fahrenheit, which is a minus 36 Celsius. The blizzard continued until 16th of July. This broke up the pack of ice into smaller individual flows, each of which began to move semi-independently under the force of the weather. While also clearing water in the north of the Weddell Sea, this provided a long fetch for the south-setting wind to blow over and then for the broken ice to pile up against itself. While individual parts moved in different directions, this caused regions of intense localised pressure in the ice field. The ice began working with sounds of breaking and colliding ice audible to those on the ship, though the next day breaks in the ice were spotted but none approached the ice holding the insurance. During July, the ship drifted a further 160 miles to the north on the morning of 1st of August. A pressure wave passed through the flow, holding the ship lifting the 400-ton endurance bodily upwards and heeling the ship sharply to its port side before it dropped into a pool of water. Afloat again for the first time in nearly six months, the broken sections of the flow closed in around the ship on all sides. Drawing the endurance toward backwards and sideways in violent fashion against the other slabs of ice. After over a quarter of an hour, a force from astern pushed the ship's bow up onto the floe, lifting the hole out of the pressure and with a list of five degrees to her port side, a gale overnight further disturbed the floe, driving it against the starboard side of the hole and forcing a sheet of ice upwards at a 45 degree angle until it reached the level 
of the scuppers. Despite the ordeal of the past few days, the ship remained undamaged. Now, it's pretty hard. It's, it's hard for me to in, envisage that, so I'm not going to be able, so I'm not going to be able to explain that in, to you in detail. But if you can imagine, like, like a whole pack, a whole slab of ice coming towards you at a fast speed, fast speeds, and it's like coming apart and coming back together again. Like this was not a very good time to be out on the sea, and this is and it's clearly evident, you know, f- with what is happening here. So, two pressure waves struck the ship on August twenty ninth without incident. On the evening of thirty four thirty first of August, a slow build. In pressure gripped the endurance, causing her hold and timbers to creak and shudder continuously. The ice around the ship moved and broke throughout the night, battering the port side of the hull. All was quiet again until the afternoon of 30th of September, by which time there were signs of spring with 10 hours of sunlight per day and occasional temperature readings above freezing. A large float was swept against the endurance's port bow and then gripped that side of the ship against the built-up ice and snow on her starboard beam. The ship's structure groaned and wrapped under the strain. Carpenter Harry McNeish noted that the solid oak beams supporting the upper deck were being visibly bent like a piece of cane. On deck, the ship's masts were ripping back and forth as their stepping points on the keel were distorted. Despite these disconcerting signs, Wirtley noted that the strength of the ship's structure was causing the ice itself to break up as it piled against the hull. Just as it appears, she can stand no more. The huge flow weighing possibly a million tons or more yields to our little ship by cracking across and so relieves the pressure. The behaviour of our ship in the ice has been magnificent. Undoubtedly, she is the finest little wooden vessel ever built. Despite this, the ship's decks were permanently buckled following this ordeal. By October, temperatures of nearly 29 Fahrenheit minus 2 centigrade were recorded and the ice showed further signs of opening up. The flow against the ship's starboard broke up on 14th of October, casting the endurance afloat in a pool of open water for the first time in nine months. So, a lot of time has passed since... the drift. So on October 16th, Shackleton ordered steam to be raised so the ship could take advantage of any openings in the ice. It took nearly four hours for the boilers to be filled with fresh water melted from ice and then a leak was discovered in one of the fittings and they had to be pumped out. Repaired and then refilled 
the following day, a lead of open water was seen ahead of the ship. Only one boiler had been lit, and there was insufficient steam to use the engine. So all the sails were set to try to force the ship into the loosening pack ice, but without success. In the late afternoon of October 18th, the ice closed in around the endurance once again. In just five seconds, the ship was counted over to port by 20 degrees. And the lift continued until she rested at 30 degrees, with the port bulwark resting on the pack and the boats on that side nearly touching the ice as they hung in their dafts. After four hours in this position, the ice drew apart and the ship returned to a level keel. The ice was relatively still for the rest of the month. On 20th of October, steam was raised again and the engines tested. On the 22nd of October, the temperature dropped sharply from 10 degrees Fahrenheit to, 12, to minus 12 centigrade, then to 14 Fahrenheit to, to then minus 26. And the wind veered from southwest to northeast. And the next day, pressure bridges could be seen forming in the ice and moving near the ship. And later, um, on October 24th, the damaged ship was wrecked by further pressure waves, pinning her between both flows. A large mass of ice slammed into the stern, into the... Uh, then, uh, don't mind me, I'm just trying to keep on track. Stern, tearing the stern post away from the hull, planking around the same line, same time. The bow planking was stove in, causing simultaneous flooding in the engine room and the forward hold, despite using both the portable manual pumps and getting up steam to drive the main bilk pumps, the water level continued to rise. The main man-powered deck pumps did not work, as the intakes had frozen and could only be restored by pouring buckets of boiling water onto the pump pipes from inside the cold bunkers, and then playing a blowtorch over the intake valve. McNeese constructed a coffer dam in the satchel to seal off the damaged stone area, while the crew were uh, arranged in spells of 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off on the main pump. After 28 hours of continuous work, the inflow of water had only been arrested. The ship was still badly flooded. At 9pm, Sackleton ordered the ship's boats, stores and essential equipment to be moved onto the surrounding ice. The footplates in the engine room were pushed up and would no longer sit in place as the compartment was compressed. The planking on the ship's port side was bowing inwards by up to 6 inches, 15 centimetres. Amid temperatures from minus 8.5 Fahrenheit, which is minus 22.5 Celsius in the morning, to minus 16, which is minus 27 Celsius in the evening. Sackleton gave the order to abandon ship on the 27th of October at about 5pm. The position at abandonment was 6905S51 
30W. During the course of the next day, parties were sent back to the ship to recover more supplies and stores. They found that the entire port side of the endurance had been driven inwards and compressed, and that ice had entirely filled the bow and stern sections. Only one of the six cabins had not been pierced by the flows. Sackleton wrote that the entire aft of the ship had been crushed concertina fashion, the forward motor engine was pushed into the galley, and gasoline cans stacked on deck were pushed through the deckhouse, ball halfway into the wardroom. The ship's blue ensign was hoisted up her mizzen mast, so that she would, in Sackleton's words, go down with colours flying. After a failed attempt to manhole the boats and stores overland on sledges, Sackleton realised the effort was much too intense, and that the party would have to camp on the ice until it carried them to the north and broke up. More parties were sent back to the endurance, still with her masts and rigging intact, and all but her bow above the ice, to salvage any remaining items by then. Two days after abandoning the ship, the ship was submerged up to the forecastle. A large portion of the provisions had been left on the submerged lower deck. The only way to retrieve them was to cut through the main deck, which was more than a foot thick in places and itself under three feet of water. Some crates and boxes floated up once a hole had been cut, while others were retrieved with a grapple. In total, nearly 3.5 tons of stores were recovered from the wrecked ship. The party, the party was still camped under two miles from the, from the remains of the endurance on 8th of November, when Sackleton returned to the ship to consider further salvage. By now, the ship had sunk a further 18 inches into the ice, and the upper deck was now almost leveled with the ice. The interior of the ship was almost full of compacted ice and snow, making further work impossible. On 13th November, a new pressure wave swept through the pack ice. The forward topgallant mast and topmast collapsed as the bow was finally crushed. These moments were recorded on film by expedition photographer Frank Hurley. The main mast was split near its base, and shortly afterwards, the main mast and the mizzen mast broke and collapsed together. With this, also filmed by Hurley. In the late afternoon of 21st November, movement of the remaining wreckage was noticed as another pressure was hit. Within the space of a minute, the stern of the endurance was lifted clear of the ice uh, as the flows moved together, and then as the pressure passed and they moved apart, the entire wreck fell into the ocean. The ice surrounding the spot where the endurance had sunk immediately moved together again, obliterating any trace of the wreck. Worsley fixed the position at 68-38-5S-52-58W. And so that was... <coughs> That so within a blink of 
possibly a few hours. The endurance was eaten up, and that ice went back together again as if nothing happened. The wreck. In 1998, wreckage found at Stinker Point on the southwestern side of Elephant Island was incorrectly identified as frozen from SIP. It instead was from the 1877 wreck of the Connecticut sailing ship, Charles Sewer. In 2001, wreck hunter David Meems unsuccessfully planned an expedition to find the wreck of endurance. By 2003, two rival groups were making plans for an expedition to find the wreck, but no expedition was mounted at the time. In 2010, Memes announced a new plan to research to search for the wreck. The plan was sponsored by the National Geographic Society, but was subject to finding sponsorship for the balance of the US $10 million estimated costs. A 2013 study by Adrian Glover of the Natural History Museum, London, correctly suggested the Antarctic Circumpolar Current could preserve the wreck on the seabed by keeping wood burning shipworms away. A Red Sea expedition to locate and possibly photograph the wreck using long-range autonomous underwater vehicles, AUVs, was underway in the Antarctic summer of 2019 from 2018 to 2019. This expedition failed when the researchers AUV was lost to the ice. Experts speculated that the that the wreck rested on flat terrain at around 3,000 metres, undisturbed by massive sediment disposition and little to no erosion. According to Julian Dallaswell of the Scott Polar Research Institute, the known conditions on the seabed suggested that endurance should not be damaged, and that she would likely be in the same state as she was when she sank in the pack ice in 1915. He also noted that any future attempts at finding the endurance would be add-on to other main scientific expeditions to the area such as the one in 2019, which was launched chiefly to study the melting and retreat of the Larsen ice selves. In July 2021, the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust announced Endurance 2022, a new expedition to search for the wreck of endurance that would launch in early 2022 using Saab submersible technology. If found, the wreck would not be disturbed, but instead stand in 3D. And indeed, you know, that was found, and as I go to the article that was written in The Guardian, Ernest Sackleton's ship endurance found off coast of Antarctica. The world's most challenging shipwreck search for one of the greatest legends of exploration history, Sir Ernest Sackleton's endurance, lost more than a century ago in the icy waters of Antarctica, has succeeded. The wreck has been found 3,000 
8 metres below the surface of what Sackleton described as the worst portion of the worst sea in the world. It was discovered on Saturday, the 100th anniversary of Sackleton's funeral, the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust said. The Endurance 22 expedition, which set off from Cape Town a month ago, had reached its goal, said Dr John Shears, the veteran geographer who led the expedition. We have made polar history with the, with the discovery of endurance and successfully completed, completed the world's most challenging shipwreck search. He hoped people would be inspired by what human beings can achieve and the obstacles they can overcome when they work together. Arcing across a submerged ship, wooden stern, is its famous limb. Preserved by the freezing waters and the absence of wood-eating organisms. And I'm going to play a clip. Um, I will try my best to describe what they're looking at. Here we go. <coughs> so... This was taken underneath, and what I'm looking at now is um, actually in the water, in the ocean, three thousand meters down is the actual endurance itself, preserved in good condition. Um, like I say, I will put I will obviously link this article in the description as well, but. Yeah, I mean, also I will include everything in the description that you can go and look look at as well. Um, so yeah, that will be it for episode for this episode. I hope you have enjoyed it. Um, <clears throat> I thought you know since I heard about this, I thought it would be good to cover it um so yeah don't forget to follow us follow us on good pods that's g-o-o-d-p-o-d-s you can download it from the uh app from the play store um so yeah follow us on there um as well as everywhere else also follow us on instagram at Sessions. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter if you want. It's Torren underscore Yoffa. Um, yeah. I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. Um, I hope you have a, a safe time wherever you are. And yeah, I will. See you in the next one. Have a great evening, guys. See you later.